Welcome to Accounting High. You can just refer to me the, as the Kim Kardashian of finance. How do you differ in accountant versus FP&A? As a general rule, I think of the accountant as the one who ensures the books are closed, does all the historical financials. That's the, that's the core piece when I think of an accountant. When I think of FP&A, they're forward-looking. It's really about allocating the next dollar of capital versus reporting on what happened. Obviously, you get some overlap and blending in companies, but that's really where I, I separate it is one is, is backward looking and is all about making sure the financial statements are right. And the other one is about making sure the dollars and the allocation and the go forward makes sense and align strategically with the company's objectives. May I have your attention, please? Live flow. So we're going to do more stuff with live flow. We're going to continue this train of, of live flow flow. Anita's awesome. I love her. And we're going to have Terrell come on to do things with live flow. If you have the skill of an accountant and you think like an entrepreneur, you can help every one of your clients make an extra a minimum several thousand dollars a month, depending on the size of the business. Hold on, but I, I'm trying to understand one thing. You've been providing the same type of service, and then all of a sudden you come and say, like, look, you need to buy this tool or that tool, but they already know that this is the level that you provide anyways. Wouldn't there be an argument that, well, we, we received it anyways, why on earth we would buy this tool now? So the way I approach it with them is I said, hey, getting this tool is going to make us even better you'll get more real-time access to the data because I'm giving you the best that I can with the tools that we had. And I know there were a couple clients that were asking about more real-time data feeds. And I was like, hey, based on the limitations of the process, there has to be downloaded from the system and put in the spreadsheet. It's a manual process. Now, if you want faster responses from me, we need to make an investment in a tool. If we get faster responses, I'm going to be able to help you even more than I'm doing now. And so when I explained it that way to them, they were like, yeah, hands down, let's do it. Let's, let's go get this tool because if this tool is going to help you give me even better information, then they're like, we're going to make even more money. And I'm like, I agree. And so <laughs> when we start looking at it that way, I think that changes the whole nature of the conversation to where they aren't like counting pennies and overanalyzing saying like, well, maybe I can afford it. It's like, no, I'm going to help you make more money so you will be able to afford this and other stuff you want to do. You recognized there were limitations in the process and it was your process that was being limited. And then this is an outside tool or something new that can be introduced to then unlock the entire process. And that's what automations do at our firms. That's what Whenever we introduce something new, like ChatGPT is, is the big unlock for the world right now. Like limitations in everybody's brain processing. Now we have a, an AI assistant to help us with everything and, and, and anything, right? But when you're looking at your processes, a lot of firms, that's their limitations to grow or to do anything. They hit ceilings when their processes aren't matching up or they don't even have documented processes. Live flow is just a play on that word processes, workflows, processes, live flow, right? So live flow is being inserted in that process to then create an entirely new process that's better too. And that's their product. That's, that's your product that you're selling the client. So I, I think that's beautiful. It's awesome how you did that. May I have your attention, please? Welcome to Accounting High. It's freshman year at a brand new school. Here, we have no rules in place as we're on a mission to set our own traditions. So hang tight and learn with us as we grow. At Accounting High, you can expect to gain knowledge in a completely different way than what you may be used to with some fun and oftentimes colorful conversations involving some of the best teachers in the accounting industry. Whether you loved high school or you hated it, here's your chance to be a part of an unforgettable experience redone. While you're here, don't forget to follow us on Spotify or subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you may be listening to us right now so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And feel free to leave us a five-star review letting us know how the school year is treating you. So sit back, relax, and open your mind because class is in session. I repeat, may I have your attention please? 
This is another public service announcement brought to you in part by Accounting High. The views and events expressed here are of the next generation of accounting and tech professionals leading this space. The events and suggestions are not to be taken lightly. Children should not partake in the listening of this podcast. Anything else? Yeah. So without further ado, the star of our show, Scott Scarano. Solo episode today. Class is in session, and we have the famous FPNA guy, Paul Barnhurst, with us today. Thanks for having me What's on up, the Paul? show, Scott. It's good to be here. I'm doing good. And you? Yeah. You got a nice beard coming in, too, since we last spoke. You cut some hair off the top of your head and kept it going on the face. Yes, the beard's been going for a little while again. I had it about this long, oh, I don't know, six, seven months ago, and then I trimmed it all off and started again. Yeah. So I was introduced to you by somebody who reached out to me from LinkedIn and I was excited to meet you. You know, he, he talked you up, said you're, you're all over on LinkedIn and it's pretty impressive. Like you're, let me just say your LinkedIn numbers here. You got almost 30,000 followers. Most of your posts get at least 450 engagements whatever you want to call that like likes and, and i don't know like i mean i don't even know how to track engagements or <laughs> impressions or anything like that i just know that i know good numbers when i see them and, and these are some pretty impressive stats here you've got a podcast that gets over a thousand listeners weekly so you got a platform here that's i just wanted to kind of set the stage and start that off tell me about like let's just start at the beginning right this is accounting high so you got to start like high school days tell me about how you got into this whole numbers thing yeah so you know it's funny as far as numbers go i've always liked numbers as a kid i delivered a paper out and the first thing i do was tear open the sports section of one of the papers i'd always put it back together so they wouldn't know but i take out the sports section and i read the box scores i love the numbers and the stats of sports then i got into high school and taking my classes. I took my first business class my junior year of high school. It was an entrepreneurship class. Loved it. Competed in the state competition for DECA for writing a business plan. And my senior year, I competed again. And I had three business classes my senior year. And I ended up getting to compete in the national competition in Detroit for writing a business plan. I wrote around about starting, a, I think the second one was a running shoe store. First one was a new and used computer store or something like that. This is back in the 90s. So I'd always enjoyed business. I ended up going to BYU, got my degree in uh, business management with an entrepreneurship emphasis, graduated in 08. And at the time, I was I was no good at networking. I wasn't good at finding a job. And uh, it took me quite a while with the crash. Actually, not, sorry, not 08. That was grad school. This was 01 when I graduated from undergrad. So right after September 11th. And I hadn't found a job yet. So the economy was really struggling and ended up going to work for the government, which is where I always said I'd last go to work. Took a job with the government, was there for about four years, and pretty quickly realized, yeah, working a career for the government is not for me. Went back to grad school and did a Master of Science in Information Management and an MBA in Finance, and then went to work for American Express, and that's where I got into FP&A. Worked for three different companies, and along the way, as I was doing that, as I was looking for a job, I started to do a few things on LinkedIn, and at one point, about five years ago, I reached out to a guy. And I asked him, I go, hey, I'll give you a Starbucks gift card if you'll spend 30 minutes with me. He goes, I don't want your gift card. I want you to write an article for my website. I, yeah, I suck at writing, but sure, I'll write you your article. And I wrote him one and he liked it. He's like, hey, will you write me a couple more? I'll give you, a, I think he said something like a hundred bucks an article. And so I did a couple for him and started to do a few things on LinkedIn here and there, not thinking much about it. And over the next couple of years, had periods where I was pretty active and times when I was not active. And then as I was really looking for a job again, I started to get more and more active on LinkedIn. I got a couple opportunities to be part of a FP&A webinars. They're done by FP&A Trends, one in Europe and some other places. They're all remote, but I did, did three of those, wrote a couple articles, had a guy in Australia reach out to me, some different things. And then I got, I started to get more serious. I got close to, I don't know, it was, October last year, about 5,000 followers. I started to post kind of daily last year when I got a new job and in 2021, and it wasn't near as busy as my prior job. And it was probably October, November, somewhere toward the end of last year. In one week, three different vendors, I'd written about software vendors, a lot about FP&A, had offered me different kind of jobs. 
one had discussed possibly doing a podcast with them. Another had talked about possibly hiring me some different arrangements. Around the same time, someone reached out to me and said, hey, I want some help with building some training for Excel. And another person reached out to me about a potential consulting job. And I told my wife, hey, I think I can make this a business. She looked at me like I was crazy. And, you know, for a while, she kind of like, I don't know about this. About a month and a half later or so, I think it was probably early February of this year, she said, hey. I get that crazy look a lot. Yeah, I, I do too. And I deserve it. So it's all good. But she said, hey, you can go for it. I definitely deserve it. <laughs> and I said, are you sure? She's like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can go for it. I, I trust you. You'll figure it out. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm giving my notice today. And I put in my notice that day. And they asked me to stay on for a little while. So I did some stuff part-time. So June is when I went 100% full-time without working with them at all. And you know things have been going great. Been doing Full-time the- influencer? Full-time what? So full-time like, what, my what own do, business. I have this? three things I'm doing. So I, I like to call it content creation versus influencing, like the podcast. I do do influence marketing. I, I don't like the word influencer, but everybody uses I know, it I know. It, you know. When I well, you'll laugh at this. I probably shouldn't admit this on a podcast, but I did on LinkedIn. So one day someone's like, people will be like, Oh, you're famous, you're an influencer. Everybody knows you in the FPNA space. And someone was kind of going on about it. I want to call one day and I go, Yeah, you can just refer to me the as the Kim Kardashian of finance. <laughs> and they just Ooh, they just laughed. I was right. like, that probably wasn't the smartest thing to say, but yeah, I just have fun with it. So I do the podcast. I do Lot, some webinars. I've done th- two so far. I got another one coming up in a couple weeks, another one in November that I'll do for different vendors and a number of other things, sponsored articles, posts. Ex- then I also do some Excel training. I've built an FP&A training course, and then I'll do a little bit of consulting here and there. The big thing that I just released was our uh, what we call our third generation market guide, which was around what we call new uh, FP&A tools that have come out over the last couple of years, financial planning and analysis tools. So that's, that's the backstory. I love how you pronounce, I love how you gave me the acronym, even though you go by the FP&A guy and you still said financial planning and analysis because it's, what can I it's say? something that I would hear thrown around all the time. <laughs> I would hear it thrown around and I didn't even know what it meant. Half of the time people were saying it because it was just like, ah, maybe it was a little foreign, but yeah, it's, you know, you're, you're a professional at this. So you still have to introduce it just in case, you know, pretty much FP and a guy could mean a lot of different things. I'm sure you've got a couple other fun things that you might throw in there. Well, you know, somebody did one time look at it and goes, what, what is the F and Panda guy (laughs) when they saw it? Cause if you, you spell out the end, (laughs) F and Panda. Yeah. They're like, well, see F and like a friend I worked with. And so that was a joke for a long time. I even had a logo. My wife drew up that had a Panda in the middle and said F Panda. That's cool. So I like that. Yeah. Panda. So, so you're, you're in this for the long haul. You have a podcast too, mm-hmm. right? Yep. Um, tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. So the podcast is it's, I do it with data rail. So data rails is one of the financial planning and analysis tools out there. They sponsor it. We've been doing it now for six months. I think we started recording in March, released our first episode in May. And we're getting ready to release episode 23 tomorrow. So, you know, it's gone good. We're definitely seeing growth. We just passed, I want to say in total, 24,000 downloads. Oof, I've been, I've got a hundred plus episodes and we're at 24,000 downloads too. (laughs) Took more episodes for us (laughs) to get there, but yeah, that's a, that's a good number. It is. Well, I've had, I've had really good sponsors and what really helped is I had a good, when I, you know, when I launched it, I had a good LinkedIn following. So that was kind of built in to help with the podcast. Yeah. I wasn't starting from kind of scratch, so to speak. I had a really good marketing team with the sponsor that put a lot of uh, you know emphasis behind advertising it and had a good email list. And so that that definitely helped with the following. Sure. But let's also set the stage too. Who's your audience? Is it business owners? Is it is it finance people? Is it accountants? Who's the audience? Yeah, so the audience is really people that work in budgeting and forecasting primarily and doing the analysis. You know, we definitely get accountants, accountants who are interested in FP&A, but it's really your core, you know, finance people that are interested in budgeting and forecasting. The guests we have on the show, almost pretty much all of them have worked in FP&A. You know, some might have been a little more data, specialized in Excel, some have been CFOs, but very heavily, hence why it's called FP&A today, is really focused. 
emphasizing the forecasting, the planning, the budgeting, the analysis, the business partnering. You know, obviously, a lot of the people I interview have accounting backgrounds. I'd say 60, 70% probably, because that's where most people come from in FBA. Do they come from working, you know, big four or private firms, or are they CPAs that went private? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, a percentage of CPAs, you get a mix. So I think there's probably four places that people come from that do FPA, maybe four or five. There's the accounting background, and many of those go big four. Sometimes there's audit, but usually it's more traditional. You know, they did a little bit of audit for a couple of years, C- CPA, then went to work for a company and ended up moving over into FPA. They might have been a controller at a small company where they did both, right? You do the budgeting and you do the accounting. And they decide, hey, I like kind of this budgeting and analysis side more. So I think that's the first area. Second is you have people that just started their career in corporate finance, you know, no accounting background and they get into FP&A because that's just a common role in corporate finance. Then you have two other groups that especially you see with a lot of, I think, SaaS and hyper growth companies is one, people have a consulting background. They did some kind of consulting. They might've had an accounting degree. They might have something else. They might've been doing, you know, restructuring, M&A, whatever, but coming from a, a big consulting firm. And then you get those that come from investment banking and decide they want to go into corporate finance. So I think those are typically the areas you see. I mean, you always have some other stuff, but those are the main areas you see people coming into FP&A from. Yeah. Well, it's a, it, this is a pretty hot topic with a lot of accountants. Every accountant wants to get into advisory, <laughs> and usually with advisory comes some form of forecasting and mm-hmm. another type of FP&A light yep. type work. I don't know how heavy it gets in a lot of accounting firms, but traditionally accountants now, that's that's kind of getting blended in. How do you differ an accountant versus like everybody else that is funneled into FP&A? What do you, when you refer to an accountant versus somebody that's in FP&A, like or in that budgeting yeah, area, the, how I mean, do you differ them? The way I look at it is, right, is a general rule. I think of the accountant is the one who ensures the books are closed, does all the historical financials. That's the, that's the core piece when I think of an accountant. When I think of FP&A, they're forward-looking. It's really about allocating the next dollar of capital versus reporting on what happened. Obviously, you get some overlap and blending in companies, but that's really where I, I separate it is one is, is backward-looking and is all about making sure the financial statements are right. And the other one is about making sure the dollars and the allocation and the go forward make sense and align strategically with the company's objectives. I like that because accountants typically have surrounded themselves with taxes and audit and that's all history. Mm-hmm. Taxes is reporting on everything that already happened and audit is <laughs> auditing what's already happened. Yep. Um, and that's, that's our, that's our whole umbrella of work in the most part. Now it's start, we're starting to see accounting firms split out audit and then have separate consulting arms, but we're hiring, you know, we, we have to hire an entirely different skill set because you can't, I'm not going to say you can't, but it's very difficult to take a traditional accountant who is comfortable looking back mm-hmm. historically and make them look forward because you can't look both ways at once and it hurts their neck to try to have to turn around and then turn forward, turn around, turn forward. So, you know, to our, to our listeners too, what I'm starting to see is advisories, people are starting to get more comfortable with that phrase, but they're using it in a sense of we're going to do some tax planning a very light, but no, nobody's really doing that forward looking unless they're hiring some kind of outsourced virtual CFO or somebody that is a finance guy. Yep. And that's an entirely different. I th- I see. I think I see more similarities with salespeople and finance people than accountants. I I would agree with that. Typically, yeah, I I would agree, and I think the reason is, you know, one of the most important skills now today for FP&A people is that business partnering. You know, everybody has the idea that FP&A just sits at a spreadsheet all day, and some days that may be true, and in some roles that may be true. But as a general rule, and the part I like about it is really that partnering with the business helping them understand the numbers, helping them, you know, achieve their goals in the most efficient way possible with allocating the dollars. And so that really requires sometimes influencing without power. Cause it's not like FP&A is in the power structure where you're going to have power over the people you're working with, right? You're supporting them. 
And so when you see things that need to be done, you got to help influence that, which is really what sales is doing, right? They're trying to influence somebody's decision to buy something. So there's definitely some similarities. Influence without power. I, that might be the title of this episode. <laughs> I like that phrase. Um, you're an influencer too. Like I just said earlier, <laughs> do you have power? I don't define power. No, I mean, in this content creation world. I don't know. Like, I mean, you define your own power, right? Like you, you said to your wife, look, I think I'm going to do this full time. You had the power to do that. And now I, I guess there is a way to define power, but do you like, um, I would definitely feel like yeah. I've made a difference in the marketplace in FPNA. And I'll give an example. You know, one of the things I did when I started my business is at first I started an Excel website. And I was writing about Excel reviews and thinking, Hey, maybe I'll try to make a business out of Excel. And I realized, I have no competitive advantage. I'm just going into a huge field with a ton of really good people. And so I started talking to some different vendors and tools. And really part of that is at the time I was trying to get a job with a couple of different vendors and I started writing about some of them. And then people saw, oh, hey, he's writing about tools. I should ask him if he'll see my tool. And I saw their tool and I saw another one. And over the last year, I've demoed over 50 different tools. And that has been my lead engine. That's what I've been recognized. I built an FPNA guide and demoed, you know, I wrote surveys and did demos of 20 tools and put together a 40 page book about what's out there in the marketplace that people aren't aware of and now getting ready to do a demo days. And so from doing that, I've become recognized as the expert. You know, I mean, I'd worked with different software tools. I mean, I've always had a liking of software, but before I really set out to understand the marketplace, by no means was I an expert, right? Yeah, I'd helped work on some potential implementation projects and things. So that's an area where I feel like I've been able to influence and, and make a difference and be able to talk to a lot of people and help different companies and things. So it's been a really interesting journey as I've tried to figure out how to build the business. And it's worked great because it helps build a lead engine. Many of these companies are new and I can do influence marketing with them. We can write an educational piece together. So it helps drive the, the business engine. I love that too, building lead engines. So 50 different tools and all this. I, you know, I'm, I'm fairly new to the FP&A world and it was introduced to me through Giraffe, LivePlan. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, most of the phrase FP&A that I heard generated from people that were surrounded in the Giraffe world. And Giraffe has been really heavily focused on accountants. Mm -hmm. uh, they're the one tool that I can think of off the top of my head. But then Data Rails and all of these others that you were mentioning, you know, these are these are tools that I don't think that they're marketing to accountants. Do, are they, is, I guess is, is my question. Yeah, for the most part, they're marketing to core FP&A. Some are marketing to fractional CFO services where they do bookkeeping and some advisory. Examples of those would be Clockwork. Um, maybe a little bit of Finmark. Clockwork, I, just ha I was just on his show, yeah. Yeah, Ginny is another one. They're actually based out of Hong Kong. So there's a few that are focused on the fractional CFO profit frog is another, but most of them are not, you know, cause it really, the, the core person that's using it is the finance person. Obviously it's going to integrate every single one of them is bringing in your ERP, your accounting data, right? If they're not, then don't buy mm -hmm. the tool <laughs> basically. Right. So there, and we define that, you know, the difference between accountant and finance type finance type is this a losing game for giraffe or the others that are marketing to accountants because they tend to have trouble with with the accountant channel they tend to not see as much adoption or when they do see adoption people and this happened with live plan live plan as well where accountants tend to be slow or never really fully adopted they yeah so i don't know is yeah i I don't know that it's, I mean, I think it was a good move by Giraffe. I think they've done a pretty good job of locking up that space. I think they've done a good job with their development channels. Again, it depends on the size and the customer you're going after, right? If you're an Anaplan that's going after okay. a mid-market enterprise that has a, you know, five to 50 FP&A people, maybe even more when you get into like an American Express or a Coke or, you know, a big multinational company, you're, you're not selling to the accountants, you're not worried about fractional CFO. You're not worried about small companies. So it, it depends on what company size they're going after and how they've built the tool, right? Those that 
are going after kind of that fractional CFO where they offer advisory services where you see some overlap sometimes between bookkeeping and that. Yes, I think some of them would like to get a little more into the accounting space. I definitely think they could see some growth there. But, you know, again, Giraffe's done a pretty good job in that area. But I definitely think there's enough out there that you don't have to be marketing to that space to be successful. And we're seeing it. I mean, the amount of growth and the fracture we've seen in the last couple of years in the industry and the amount of VC dollars going into it just shows how big the opportunity is. I mean, between private equity and VC, not counting Anaplan going private, if you count Anaplan going private, you know, I think they were bought at 11 billion. There's probably been 13, maybe 14 billion dumped into the space in the last few years. Just FP&A? Yeah, just FP&A tools. There's probably almost 100 of them out there now. I mean, just the 15 I highlighted in the guide are close to 600 million in in raising. Vena did a few hundred million a couple of years ago. Profix did some, you know, Anaplan was sold. So that was an 11 billion going public, they were public and went private. But yeah, the dollars that are being spent in this space is huge. Because think of the opportunity, over 70% of people plan in Excel. And think how many people use Excel, how many companies are out there. And, you know, typical price point on many of these tools is, you know, 1500 2000 a month for a mid-market company. A small company might be 500 to 1000 Versus Excel, which basically doesn't cost anything. Yeah. Right? Yeah, but if you Excel, can get, I mean, you, you can get you pay 1% for your Microsoft of the market. License. Yeah, yeah, if you can get 1% of the market at that price, that's a huge opportunity. But yes, much more expensive than Excel. But when you deal with the pain point, when you hit that point where Excel doesn't work, people are usually willing to spend it, right? Because the reality is we've all hit the point where version control, security, linking files together, you you get into what you call Excel hell, right? We've all all dealt with it. If you've done any (laughs) kind of budget where you're just throwing up your hands and the numbers are wrong because something broke in your link or you screwed up your model or... And so that's really what they're trying to sell on is, hey, look, one, we can take away a lot of the pain points of Excel. And two we can integrate all your data, right? Bring in your accounting data, bring in your Salesforce or your CRM data, bring in your HR data, bring in your billing data. If you're a SaaS business in particular, you know, put that all in one model and let us help you plan and report and do all those things versus doing it all manually. I mean, that's the, that's the business proposition and there's pros and cons each way. Obviously nobody's cracked the nut completely. Otherwise we wouldn't be seeing, you know, 70% still using Excel. So with that many players in the market, that much money in the market, how do you go about picking the right tool? How do you know that the tool you pick is going to last? You know, so there's, there's a couple things. One is people have to realize, I think the biggest thing is the tool is an enabler, right? Anytime you're adopting anything and going through a digital transformation, you have to think about strategy. You got to think about long-term change management, Make sure your house and your data is in order. So I think that's the first thing. Next thing is knowing what you want. You know, I was talking with somebody the other day and just kind of was trying to segment the market and without just looking at small, medium, and large, but kind of the tools. And the way I think of it is there are some tools that are totally linked to, with like Power BI or Click or they're totally a BI tool with planning integrated and you write back to the database. So it's like, hey, is that important to you? Do you want to integrate that all? Do you want that? that? Do you really need to be able to use your spreadsheet and you want to be closely integrated your spreadsheet? Okay, then you have like a data rails and a Venn and a cube. Do you want something that doesn't use Excel at all, like a causal that's trying to replace Excel? And then you want some kind of hybrid. So I think first kind of understanding what, what makes sense for your business, what you want. But beyond that is having that list and walking through your business requirements, having a business case that you can ask them to demonstrate to make sure they can meet your needs. Because they all say they're industry agnostic. Mm-hmm. They all say they can do any kind of planning. But the reality is they all have different strengths and weaknesses. And so walking through that business case versus just being sold, what often happens is they go to an implementation firm. The implementation firm only uses one or two or maybe three different software vendors they implement and they just say, oh yeah, this one will work great. And they're like, okay. And you know, a year or two later, they're back to using Excel. Yeah. So why, or first, does Microsoft have an FP&A tool? They do not. And why not is my question. Like they 
they pretty much own the market as far as Excel and everything else. Like you would think with that this big of an opportunity, they can get people off of Excel and onto their platform. I've I've asked that question and I've I've wondered the same thing of why because they have an ERP, right? They have dynamics, they have a CRM, they have the yeah. BI tool, they have you know, they have almost everything edge around it. Now they have some very basic budget forecast models within their ERP, their dynamics, but pretty much every tool has some kind of really light uh, d- thing, but sense. they're not heavily used for budgeting and forecasting. So yeah, I- it's crazy because Dynamics is a pretty powerful platform. And mm-hmm. if you could own the market everywhere else, I mean, you know, I guess they see Excel as their That's tool. what I think. I and mean, they, I, and I, I, I think Excel what they've is, done is yeah. I think it drives so much partner engagement between Excel and BI that they probably, there's probably a lot of income there and they've decided that that works well and they'd rather spend the dollars on dominating BI, dominating Excel, doing the automation stuff they're doing. It's the only thing I can think of in the dynamics because yeah, to me, I've wondered for a long time why they haven't. Yeah, they could they could own the market. They could take some of the best players and consolidate or however, I mean, whatever they decide. But the fact that they do work with everybody and they play nice with others, I think that plays well to the fact that it's such a huge market that if they can cut deals with everybody, then they're probably making money on the back end. Yeah, I, I'm sure they're things. not hurting because so many of these tools want to be Microsoft certified, right? They're Every single one of them, we all know what's the, the most common button in any software program, export to Excel, right? It's the number one button in every <laughs> CSV finance yeah. tool, a CSV or an Excel file. Usually you get the option to do both. Yeah. Yeah. Or or number of them. I mean, not just Excel or CSV. I mean, XLS, XL. Yeah, Yeah, XLS, AM, XL. So I guess, yeah. yeah. So. It's the industry standard for computing, you know. Um, As I've heard it say by some people, in some ways, it's almost the operating system of finance. You know, not accounting. Obviously, the ERP is kind of that operating system for accounting. But outside of that, I mean, so many ways, so much is done in Excel. It holds, holds the finance world in place. Like if we got, just think if we got rid of Excel tomorrow, right? How many models, uh, how could, many deals? Like, I'd be a mess. Well, that's that's just not possible. That's like saying, what if we get rid of AWS yeah, tomorrow? Well, exactly. That's what I mean. It's just, they're just so, right, ingrained in everything we do. I mean, go look at any job, you know, go look at so, job jobs in finance. It's what, 80% of them require Excel. A few are Google Sheets, but they're almost all Excel. Yeah. Well, no, that's, my, that's my next question then. So I was going to say Apple, but Apple doesn't ever really do things. They don't really try to penetrate the business market that no. much. I mean, they, they've got their, they've got everything else. But Google, like, does Google have a tool? The, the, I'm not aware of any planning tool for Google. There are a couple companies that have now built planning tools on Google's, on Google Sheets. Google Sheets. Like there's one that pretty much uh, has has the exact same syntax as Google Sheets called OnPlan. Cube is another that integrates both Google Sheets and Excel really well. And others have, you know, built a kind of a hybrid where they try to load stuff from Google into their, in their tools. So you're seeing a little bit more built for it, but I'm not aware of any planning tool by Google Sheets. I know there's one, and again, it wasn't done by Salesforce, but, and I haven't had a chance to demo this one, but somebody built a planning tool that sits in Salesforce. It's a total add-in to Salesforce. So another one that was built on Click recently. Salesforce, that's interesting too. So you said the word fracture earlier. Define that or tell me why, why you say fracture. Well, I mean, if you think about it, let's look at the spreadsheet market or the ERP market. So if you take the spreadsheet market, right, you got Excel, you got Google Sheets. That's you got two big players, and then you have a bunch of small little ankle biters, office suite type stuff, whether it's Corel or uh, Sun or Libre, or you know, there's some new guys in the space, Equals, Sheetrock, some others. But it really is dominated by two players. If you look at the ERP, if you're a large company, it's mostly dominated by SAP and Oracle, right? If you're a small company, it's dominated by Zero and QuickBooks. And then you have a bunch kind of in that mid-size net suite uh, and a few others. The, yeah, that was my next. Sage. You know, you you know when you get into manufacturing get into market, and restaurant, sage, yeah. you have some unique. But probably what, 80% of the market is maybe seven ERPs counting Dynamics and Sage and 
Oof. Well, on in our market, it's like 90% QuickBooks and then zero has another yeah. percentage, at least in the US. Market. Yeah. And the smaller, yeah. And the smaller size of the market. So, right. It's very consolidated. Yes. There are some little ankle buyers mm-hmm. and some specialty, but you look at the FP&A and it's not. And I think what it is, is as cloud became available, as web apps became really easy to program and data integration, right? You can get native integration to just about anything quite easy now. Everybody saw the pain points of Excel and saw this as a really attractive market. And in the last couple of years, they've gone after it very heavily. Tons of new entrants. I mean, there is almost not a week that goes by that I hear from a CFO or I mean, a CEO that wants to demo their tool to me. I mean, it's crazy how many people I talk to. And I think it's because, you know, if you look at it, there's low barriers to entry. There's not a lot of dollars to get in. Now, it takes a long time to develop a good tool but the barrier to get in isn't high. There's, you know, you have Excel, but beyond that, there's not a ton of substitutes, right? If you kind of do a strategic analysis, there's definitely some areas where it's attractive and there's a lot of VC money. And so I think that's what's driving it. And I think in time, we'll definitely see consolidation in the industry. So the the other, yeah, so the, the leg up that a lot of these companies have is probably the founder has a history in finance, FP&A, they know how to put good numbers together. They know how to put together good projections. It's going to be easier to get funding if you're the person that's doing that. Like they, if you have that history, like I, I would, I would have to think that that what five hundred, six hundred billion dollars in this market has to be a direct result of the people that are in this market too. Yeah. So I think there's two things I'm seeing in the founders. There's a number of them, right? They were CFOs. It came from, they came from the finance space. So it's one of two. They came from the finance space or they came from the tech space and they headed up prior successful exits and they saw the pain and they saw how they felt finance was behind other areas of the business technically. And so they set out to solve it and they found somebody who had the FP&A experience to be part of their leadership team. So that's usually the two paths you see of these starters. And so, yes, if they're ones that have been successful with multiple exits, VC are going to line up, right? If they feel like, okay, got a management team that everything they've touched has turned to gold. Why wouldn't I put a million, a couple million dollars in and take the risk on the fund? Yeah. So, and they're doing it left and right. It's, it's a no brainer for, for them because it's always a gamble anyway. Anybody, you know, yeah. anybody's a gamble. So this now, now one thing that is a hot like topic or everybody's talking about is, VC money is drying up a bit. Are you seeing that or is it is it still flush for this market? I wouldn't say it's flush. I mean, you're definitely seeing a lower of the valuations. You're seeing it dry up some. I've seen since kind of the market went dry, there's been two big announcements that I'm aware of. Cube raised 30 million and they probably had that finalized because it came out a week or two after kind of really when things started to dry up about what, four or five months ago. And then last week, Pigman announced it's second series B rounding of 60, I think 67 million. So they've raised 167 so far. So those are the two big ones. I mean, there's definitely still money out there. I uh, work as a non-paid advisor for Born Capital and they've done, a, I think, two small investments since things kind of dried up. One in an FP&A tool and one in something else in the office of the CFO. I can't remember which tool it was. So it, it's out there, but it's not like it was. So you picked the right market to go into. There's a lot of action, a lot of activity. Let's talk some hard numbers for your business now, right? So you're a business owner. Yep. You're, you don't have, do you have any employees? Not at this point. I'm coping in the next few months to hire a virtual assistant, but that would be it. Oh, I love my VA. Let me <laughs> tell you, I, I, I'm still getting all the kinks worked out and everything, but I don't have to go into my email anymore. <laughs> that was the only thing I wanted to get out of his email. <laughs> hate email (laughs) yeah so so you're but you're you're kind of like doing you know this was your it's almost like you found your your calling you found your purpose you found what you want to do and you're successfully doing this as a solo artist too like you don't have to have a team around you for something like this Mm -mm. you're fulfilling your passion you're filling your calendar you're filling you know i'm sure you're very busy person doing all of this 
how much money are you making doing it? So this year, my goal when I started the business, and this includes, you know, my uh, working some full-time, some part-time for a few months with a job. But this year, the goal was 175 for a full year. I'll probably clear two, somewhere around two, 220. Okay. And my goal, if I can get some digital courses and continue growing, you know, I'd like this to be a three, 350,000 a year business. And that's almost pure margin. I mean, what is your overhead? Not much. <laughs> yeah, there's, it's, it, you know, there's it, some tools. It's the same overhead that if you weren't working, and, right? A little, like, yeah. I know, but for real. Like, yeah, it's a couple percent. They're going to give you their tools to test. Like, you're not paying for any FP&A tools. You're no, not paying no, for I mean, much of anything. Like, honestly, if you weren't doing this and you were just kind of like selling crafts, you got to have internet. You got to have, you know, different things. I'm, I don't know why I brought up crafts, but. Yeah, you get the idea. I mean, basically, that's, that's it's, it's the subscription tools. It's Canva. It's, you know, Microsoft Office. It's whatever. Th those type of things. Just the, the different yeah. subscriptions, some insurance. I mean, you're maybe four or $500 a month in different subscriptions, insurance. What kind of insurance? Like that. Just business insurance. What kind of insurance? Um, okay. I just have General a stand. I think business. it's like a so million just... dollar liability policy. There's not a lot to it. And what are you worried about to have that? Like, what, Oh, what, the only reason I had it is I had to have it for some consulting stuff I was doing. They required it. So I figured it made sense. Like to they get. required it just yeah. to get the uh, workers comp thing. Yeah. So because they're hiring you and they're saying you need insurance because we can't put you on ours because you're not an employee. So, is that right? Yeah, just yep, to cover That's, any I mean, kind of sense. risks. And so I've obviously I've just kept it. I figure you never know as you're growing, there's always different risks. So So what did you do? Did you set up an LLC? Yeah, I set up an Inc. LLC. Yep. LLC. So you are you running as a sole proprietor? Did you sit do an S Corp? How did you so set that up? It's a sole proprietor for now. I haven't done an S Corp. We've had some talk of possibly switching it over. We'll see if it makes sense. And we, do you work with an accountant? I do have an accountant. Yes. Okay. Okay. One that's, here. That's always, that's always a question that we ask. You know, I just, not an accountant I, already. I could have done it myself, the court of stuff. But I'm like, you know, it's just time with running a business and the complexity. I'll let somebody who's more deep into it fit, do it in case I'm missing Well, that's stuff. the right answer on this podcast. Yeah. You gotta, I, I you gotta hire right a professional. Answer. I'm just like, it's not my, it's yeah. not my You're uh, definitely specialty. making enough to be an S corp. I would tell you. I would tell you if you were talking to to me or my firm, you should be an S corp at this point because you're probably paying too much in self employment tax right now. Like, there's a way you can structure that. Yeah, a no, bit I, yeah, I, no, I know about but that. There's also, We've had you know, some conversations. Sure. There's some some other things as well. But I, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about with the S corp and the pay yourself yeah, a salary. Yeah. I'm and not here to savings. grill you, but no, you're fine. We, I did have. I'm sure it's relevant. I had that conversation yeah. at length with the accountants. So. Good, good. And does the accountant do your taxes too? He will. It's new. I just hired the accountant this year. I'd always done them myself before this. Okay. So. Okay. Okay. That's no, there's no shame in doing it yourself, but usually people do leave some opportunities on the table. So this is a legit business endeavor. You're pretty much handling it all yourself. I mean, does your, does your wife help out with some stuff too? Or does she full-time job? How does that yeah, she, she helps yeah. out from time to time. She mostly takes care of our daughter and there's some other things she's working on, but yeah. So she, she may help out so, more in the future and we're hoping. So would you say that the foundation of all of this was LinkedIn? A hundred percent. Without a doubt. Tell me a little bit more about LinkedIn. Why LinkedIn? So really, I mean... For LinkedIn, it started with just trying to get a job. But then as I built, what was it last year? So as I started to grow, people reached out to me with job opportunities off LinkedIn. I mean, I've been asked about being a CFO. I've had some consulting gigs. I've had vendors try to hire me. But, you know, in addition to that, what I found is there's a guy by the name of Anders Lou Lindbergh who's built a very successful business from LinkedIn. He has over 100,000 followers on LinkedIn. And so I modeled after some of the things he did. And LinkedIn, you know, businesses have found as far as social media and driving leads, what is it? 40% of marketers say it's the number one tool. And, you know, a lot of data shows it's one of the best places to get leads for your business, LinkedIn. And so it gives me a built-in opportunity. One, there's an audience there. So when I launch digital courses, there's a, you know, an audience to sell to. Two, the vendors really like it because I'll write an educational piece with, with them. So I'll pick a subject. I don't do... Uh, promotions, but I'll do educational pieces. They'll write a, I'll write an article for them and 
put it on LinkedIn and they get traffic. Like I did one for a company that was pretty much brand new. And they talked about, you know, how they had a number of signups and they saw a spike in their traffic on their website. And what it allows me to do is the audience likes it because I'm not saying, hey, you should buy this product. I'm not going out there and promoting it and doing affiliate. I'm saying, look, here's some educational content that fits well with the vendor that they could help you solve this problem. You should, you know, if you're interested, check them out. And here's some something to help you solve your problem. That's so valuable for everybody because they it's it's very transparent when somebody's just promoting products on there and just pushing it for their affiliate link. And people tend to tune it out. But if you're trying to add value in everything that you're doing, everything else naturally kind of fits its way in. But it's a lot of work to get there too. So you said when you started out, you had about 5,000 followers. I don't even have half that. And like it's how do you even get to the point where you had 5,000 followers to say, I'm going to do more of this or take this seriously? So I think for me, one area that really helped me drive my followers when I was first starting is one, I wrote an article on Excel and I referenced a guy that was a very successful financial modeler out of Australia that I patterned the article after. And I remember I got quite a few likes from that. I think I got over 10,000 at the time I might've had, you know, a thousand, 1200, whatever, pretty small audience. And so I thought, Hey, mm-hmm. there's something to this. And then sure. there was this group that I joined called FPNA trends and they were looking for people to help moderate the conversation. So I started doing that and that required me to help once a month, uh, come up with posts. So I started to learn to post. And so I started to do more things of my own and people liked them. And I started building some audience and then, you know, other people would reach out, Hey, do you want to write this article for us? And you get some followers from that and Hey, be part of this webinar and 50 people might follow you from that. And it started building. And then I started doing, you know, almost daily and seeing others and started to build it. And it was around between four and 5,000 when I started posting every day, it was probably, I think around November last year, I might've missed one day toward the end of the year, but I haven't missed a day this year. I've posted now, you know, almost 300 straight days. So that's like your daily habit. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a daily habit. And that's so a process. That's a process. And in that time I've grown, you know, from a year ago to now I've added about 23,000 followers. And I'd say an average month I'm adding, mm-hmm. you know, to 2,500 right now. And an average just more month. than I even have as, as a total. Yeah. But it really comes down to like, consistency. That, that's just a kind of fr- frame of reference. Thing. Yeah. You know, really consistency, consistency and value. If you provide, you know, value so, to people and you're consistent, it will it will happen. It's just a matter of time. So consistency and value, I like that. When you are doing posts every day, how do you go about this? Do you already do you already have a bunch that are laid out that are just ready to be posted? Are you doing a whole one day where you do a bunch and you lay like how, tell me a little bit? You know, about I'm pretty process. I'm pretty bad at this. So you know, I have one post every week that will always be the podcast. I usually have one other sponsored piece where I've worked on an article outside of that. I usually write the art, the, the piece I'm going to do the morning of, I finally started to create a content calendar because of the business. So I will admit it's been really bad. Some mornings it's get up and Hey, let's just find something that worked well from a few months ago. I'll go out to shield, look at something, tweak it a little bit and throw it out there. Other times it's coming up with something fresh. Sometimes I have ideas in my head. I might lay out a week. I've got to the idea where I know kind of, what I want to cover. And I'm trying to get much better at now systematizing the content now that I have a good library of it. And now that I have a fair amount of sponsored stuff, getting much better at really putting a calendar together and thinking through what the strategy is. Cause I've been in yeah. the most part, I kind yeah, of that's last year I fly by the kind of for a lot of it, the seat of my pants in the sense of wake up that morning and what do I want to write about? Which isn't the best way to do it. But that was the first thing you did. No, no, no. That The best way to do it is that's what you were doing. You didn't let the day go by and eventually do it because that's how habits break. Yeah. Always. Very like rarely did I it didn't you don't get really set out to, Yeah. And you know the day that you missed too, right? And so regardless of what you have going on, you could do a post because you've got your phone. Mm-hmm. I make sure right. I do are one. Are you doing even it if mobile or are you doing it on the computer? I usually do it on the computer, but I'll do some mobile from time to time. A little bit of both. And you know what LinkedIn is, is, is rewarding mobile lately. I've noticed, I, I don't want to keep no, switching no, no, gears, you're totally fine. I, I have noticed they allow you to do more on mobile than they do, than you, they do on the computer. And I think that's because they're trying to push people toward that. Like you can do certain types of posts and certain things 
only when you're on mobile does it allow you to do that. Is that have you noticed that? I know they've they've started to add more and more things. I haven't noticed that as much myself with the type of posts I'm doing, but I know there's some different changes they've made to the mobile and what you can see. I know they're adding some links. You know, they've done a number of things. They've added LinkedIn audio, kind of like Clubhouse and different stuff. So I and I definitely I respond to a lot of people. I mean, I use my mobile all the time. It's not like I'm Usually I'll, I'll write the article on my computer just because it's easier to have more when I'm going out to websites, building something on Canva is much easier to do on a computer than on a mobile phone. And often I'm including some kind of graphics or something I've built on Canva. So I, that's usually why I use desktop is just some of that authoring process is just mm-hmm. easier. And... When do you find you get your most engagement? Do you already know if a post is going to do well? Like even with reposting, do you take sometimes posts that did very well, repost it and it doesn't do well? Do you, are you finding like they generally how do you get your they engagement? generally still do pretty well. So what I found, I mean there's definitely topics that do better than others. One of the top topics you always see is Excel. People love to discuss okay. Excel. Other is how-to guides. Like I do a monthly, it's, a, it's almost 70 pages now, where I release it for free that covers FP&A, Excel, financial modeling. And the first time I did it, I want to say I got a thousand followers from that one post. You know, for me right now, a really good post, like I'm, I probably had maybe 10 that have hit this level is 100,000 views. You know, and a ba- anything under 5,000 now I would consider is, is a bad post. You know, average I do is for views. Yeah, for views. I do about probably twenty-five thousand views on an average post and about a one percent engagement rate. Just just under one yeah. percent, about point eight, somewhere in that range. So that's I, interesting. I think over the last ninety uh, days I've done about yeah. two point three million views, if I remember right. In fact, I'm gonna look because I'm curious. I'll tell you. Because you're a numbers guy. I like this. I yeah. am a numbers guy. I'm Totally. So, you know, if I go to the profile, we'll show you the last seven days. So just to kind of give some statistics here, I've had 213,000 impressions in the last seven days. So about 30,000 a day. I've had, you know, almost 1700 searches, 8,000 profile views. If I look at the last 90 days, what I've done. So past 90 days, I've had 2.3 2.3 million impressions. That's up 16% compared to the prior 90 days. And my engagement. And is that so? Hmm? Go. Keep going. Yeah. yeah and yeah, as I said, the engagement is 18,000 engagements between shares, views, likes, which is up 3% compared to the prior 90 days. So my views are up, but my engagement as a percentage is slightly down in the last 90 days. As a percentage, yeah. but it's still up. It's still up. Yeah. Overall. The overall number of yeah. engagements is up. So what are you paying attention to then? Like you've got all this stuff going on. You've got meetings and things. You got to do your posts. What's the most important thing? So for me, I mean, it, it all kind of feeds together. As far as on LinkedIn, the most important thing, there isn't one. I look at it as a combination strategy. There are days when it's really trying to add people, add followers, because 30% of the number of views you get on LinkedIn is related to your followers. It's the number one correlation they can find and not coincidence, right? The more followers have, the more views. So there are times when you're trying to do content that's really around just getting, you know, getting people to follow you, providing free information that people like. And then there's other times where very much the content is trying to brand yourself as an expert around tools, very much speaking about that. When I, when I niche down and speak in detail about tools, I might only get five, you know, 10,000 views. But I may get two people who reach out to me that want to meet with me about a CEO and one of them might be a client or there might be a business opportunity. So it's finding the right mix to you know drive the engine, the funnel, so to speak. Because I don't do any paid advertising. I've done zero paid advertising. Everything's come through you know LinkedIn. I do have a small, very small Instagram and Twitter. But that is... And then I have the podcast, which helps as well. Yeah. And... I have found too, the people who focus on one platform tend to do a lot better overall than the ones that are shallow, like across all and trying to grow all. Yeah. I, you know, like, and just me personally, like I can only focus on LinkedIn or Twitter. And if I, if I 
go too hard on one, then the other one just falls off. Yeah. And I'm sitting here like trying to grow them both and I don't even know what the hell I'm doing. So this, this is great. Advice. <laughs> I didn't, I didn't know what um, I was doing it either. I've been figuring it out as I go. So, yeah, but the low views sometimes, you know, how, when you do something that's real, has at least a lot of value to the people that it does, maybe it is lower engagement, but it's going to create more opportunities for you. So that's, that, that's why you're mixing it up. Yeah, exactly. That's why I you know, like, you know, the tools area, if I was strictly just wanting to get followers, I'd probably talk a lot more about Excel and financial modeling, but I want it. I sure. enjoy demoing tools. I enjoy working with the vendors. I feel like I've you know, become an expert in that space. And so I write about it and I can get some really good, you know, views on that, but it's not, it's never going to be top content because it's more niche, right? There's more of a focus. It's not as much for sure people are thinking about, but I definitely write about it, you know, one, because I enjoy it. And two, that's what people know me for. You know, they kind of know me as the tools guy now in, a, in, FP, in the FP&A space. And so I, you know, people expect me to speak about it. And I, I like to know you as the FP&A guy. They do. But a lot of people also know me. You're as not the, the tool guy. Person. You're the FP&A guy. <laughs> yes. That is what I'm first known as. But I mean, these different vendors, you know, they know me as someone like I've talked to all of them in this guide we came out with has made a huge difference for them in the marketplace, right? So they know me as the guy that knows the software tools. Like people are like, oh yeah, you have a new tool? Go talk to Paul. Like I get people that refer firm when they come to talk to him, they refer him to me. They're like, hey, I was referred to you by so-and-so, by so-and-so, can I? Can you demo my product? Mm-hmm. So. so the branding too, FP&A guy. I think uh, on our previous call, you kind of gave me the story behind that. Um, how did you throw that together? So I, I don't remember when it happened, but it was well over a year, two years ago. Just one day I was trying, you know, when they came out with hashtags on LinkedIn, I was like, I got to throw a hashtag on here. And I'm like, I'm just going to throw the FP&A guy. And I still remember, I almost stopped doing it. Some Someone complained to me that they're like, well, women can work in FP&A too. I'm like, well, yes, but I'm a man. I'm like, well, you shouldn't be using that hashtag. And I was almost like, okay, are people offended? Like, maybe I won't use it. I decided I was going to stop and then somebody used it in a post. They're like, hey, you need to follow the FP&A guy. And I got like 50 followers that day. And I'm like, I'm not giving this up. I'd already decided I'd picked another one, something like I think it was FP&A hot takes or something. I don't remember. But one of the best decisions I made was sticking with that. Because, you know, if you type the FP&A guy into Google, the entire first page is stuff by me. Either articles I've written, my website, my LinkedIn profile, outside of ads, nothing else comes up and you know people remember the names like oh hey i want to go see what he's done they'll type that into google and i own it yeah well i'm I'm going through something very similar every episode of recording is accounting high because i i wanted to get it a little bit more neutral but that was because my the first co-host i had we were sons of cpas yep both male and then now i have other co-hosts too technically not even son or daughter of CPA. So we're going with this whole accounting high theme and the branding is going to be high school and it's just going, going hard on that. But I also don't want it associated with me. And that's also why I want to separate from the sons and daughters and all that and just go straight up accounting. Yep, makes and sense. it's very niche though. At least our audience, I can't see it. I can't see it growing too big mm-hmm. like like that because we're not going toward general business owners accounting firm owners yeah no i totally to get it there's a fair, li- not there's a lot a of limit, accounting right yeah to the audience size i recognize that in fpa oh, yeah. as well i mean it's not like i'm ever gonna have a million well, followers on linkedin and i don't need that you know so yeah but you know it's you look at you so who do you look to as like competition in this market yeah i really or worthy rivals. I don't really think of them as rivals or competition. What's nice is almost all the content creators, we work together on things. We talk all the time. A lot of the most popular ones on LinkedIn and I've partnered with them on different things. We're all different enough that we really try to help build each other and grow together. Like a guy by the name of Christian Wittig, him and I are speaking at the Association of Finance Professionals. He has his own course in FP&A. Nicholas Boucher and I have talked multiple times. Anders, which has one of the biggest profiles, he focuses on business partnering. We partnered on this third generation market guide. Asa focuses on the India market. 
in helping people new in their field. And we've partnered on things. And so really, I really look at it as we each kind of have our own unique niche and we should find ways to help and build each other because there's more than enough room for the people that are in the marketplace, which is great, which is what you want, where you're not stepping on each other's toes and it's, hey, I'll, I'll undercut your price, right? That's not a, it's not a market I want to be in. I love that too. That's, I always answer this question the same way. People ask me, I'm doing my raps now and they're like, well, what about this guy? He's, he's a, he's a rapper. To, like, don't you have competition now? And I was like, I don't see that. I would love to work with anybody else that's trying to rap for accountants or business <laughs> owners. Like that's not really happening that much. It's that that's blue ocean right there. So yeah, I mean, it's nobody's really competition when you see everybody as a friend and you see everybody as, you know, potentially could work together too. Cause everybody's, you know, kind of in this together, but that, but your market has got to be pretty small. Like you can probably only count that on your hands, how many people are doing this daily. Yeah. I mean, the, maybe not on your, like in this space. Yeah. The, the daily creators on LinkedIn that are really FPNA, you, you get a few more if you get into the fractional CFO services, but FPNA, eight, 10 of us probably. I mean, then there's, you know, a handful of maybe yeah. 15 others that are fairly regular. Like data rels did a, article where they listed the top 20 people on LinkedIn to follow an FPNA, right? The list was 20 long and not all of those post every day. Some might post a couple times a week. Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's definitely small. It's not like the data science or data space where you got, you know, a couple hundred people. So my goal in two years is to do a wrap a day. This I want to see two years. <laughs> yeah. And I might put them on TikTok, LinkedIn. Where Can I have an FPNA guy? I'm not ready for that yet. I can't. Oh, I, I'm not like quite. A, you, you, you can for sure. All right, I can, well, you're I can ready. write you I a rap. Yeah. I want a rap. I'll put it on my website. I'd, I'd love to do that. Actually, like that, that would be dope. Um, I'm uh, and I'm op I'm I'm op open market here. I got a lot of ideas, a lot of raps I'm working on, All but right. they take me a while. Like well, this, let me know when you have time and what recently. something like that would run. It'd be fun. I'd be open to discussing it. So yeah. Oh hell yeah, that'll that'll be dope. Um, so you got daily creators, but a ton more of daily consumers. Yes, less than one percent right? of people post at least once a week on LinkedIn. One percent. But how many people are going on LinkedIn daily? Uh, so the average times, there's 800 million people on LinkedIn altogether. The, I think it's about 40%. I just saw the statistic the other day on an article. I know the average amount of time someone spends on LinkedIn is 17 minutes a week. So you don't have a lot of time to catch their interest. But let me see. LinkedIn statistics that will blow your mind. That was the article that I just read the other day. And let me see if I can find it because it was really interesting. So good yeah, numbers, 830 though, million like... members, 58 million registered companies. Mm -hmm. uh, of those, LinkedIn users are frequently engaging with the, with the platform. 40% access it on a daily basis. So about 320 million Jesus. are on there every day. Users only spend about 17 minutes on LinkedIn per month, though. That's across everything. Oh. So. Uh, and across all users. 50% of adults who have a bachelor's or advanced degree in the U.S. are LinkedIn users. Well, the site engages with only 10% of people whose education doesn't surpass high school. So it's a professional network. Microsoft. Site. And Microsoft owns LinkedIn. Yes. They own all that information. Yeah. And that was me just getting full circle back to the beginning here. Yep. Right? <laughs> Microsoft will eventually have an FPNA tool. Mark my words. Eventually they will. Maybe it makes sense for them not to now, but you would think that this is part of their market. So. Yeah. It's going to be really interesting to watch Microsoft grow. I mean, the big focus right now has been owning the BI space and integrating it better with Excel. And it'll be interesting okay. to see what they do from there. But yeah, I mean, would it surprise me? No. Maybe they won't all. need, they, maybe they won't need an FPNA tool because the BI will just 
AI will just tell you what you need to do, right? You don't need a person. You don't need a tool to do it. They'll just yeah. take everything in and, and, give and, you the and also maybe yeah, you'll continue Ask to see geez. more on the spreadsheet side of trying to meet that need because it's what most business, a lot of businesses use nowadays. Yeah. Maybe there'll be an Excel add-on. Who knows? So, Paul, appreciate you coming on. Um, thank you for your time. I know you're a busy person. I know that our audience should know where to find you because you're the FPNA guy. They can just Google it. <laughs> that's that's going to be easy. Any any parting words of wisdom for us? No, Scott. Just uh, enjoyed being on the show and talking with you. And and I guess yeah, as one parting wisdom, a lot of people ask me about starting a business, starting a solopreneurship. You know, if content creation is what you want to do, find your niche, find your market, be consistent and add value, and it will happen over time if that's really what you want. I mean, I didn't set out to do this. It just kind of happened. Just started doing it, liked it, and before I know it, I got some job offers. I'm like, hey, maybe I can turn this into a business. So this wasn't intentional at all. But the advice is so often people get asked, well, how did you do what you do? And it's like, just go, just start doing it. Like, it's like anything in life. You got to start somewhere. And nobody's good at it in the beginning anyway. No. Nobody is is that good at this stuff. And, you know, like I, I always use that as an excuse. Oh, my posts are terrible or I'm not that good. And it's, you know, I get no engagement because I'm not doing this daily. I maybe do it once a week. If not, I do it every other week or every once a month sometimes. No, I've written, so, I've written plenty of crappy posts. Consistency and value. Mm-hmm. I like the consistency and value. That might be the title of this episode. So, Paul... Appreciate it. The FDNA guy. Check him out. He's dope. Thanks for coming on. Yep, thanks. Thanks for having me, Scott. Appreciate it.